Oxford International Relations Society podcast. Today I'm speaking with Corey Sharkey and Caitlin Vito at the International Institute of Strategic Studies in London. Corey Sharkey is Deputy Director General of the IISS and was previously a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institute on War, Revolution and Peace. Caitlin Vito is Coordinator for the Deputy Director General's Office at the IISS and is a regular contributor to its publications on armed conflict and migration issues. It's a pleasure to speak to you both today, um, especially as a group of three women, um, both engaged in international relations and enthusiastic about podcasts. Um, Corey, I think I've listened to every yeah. foreign policy and deep state radio Yay! episode you've featured. And deep state nerd! Exactly. Um, and Caitlin, when we first met at a IISS event, we ended up sharing our favourites. Um, so gender and podcast are two themes I'd like to return to later on. Um, but firstly, if you could please briefly introduce yourselves, um, the IISS and your roles here. Sure, maybe I'll start. Mm -hmm. uh, so the International Institute for Strategic Studies is uh, a magnificent defense think tank. We focus on producing policy-relevant data and research on the causes, courses, and consequences of conflict. So we publish the military balance, which is the encyclopedia of forces, budgets, and equipment. We publish the armed conflict survey and keep a database about kind of a lower grade, lower temperature conflicts so that people can study over time whether mm -hmm. things that things are getting better or worse in, in low grade conflict mm -hmm. zones. Uh, we do a whole bunch of research on emergent security problems. One we are just starting to sink our teeth into is whether uh, what an arms control regime in a world of artificial intelligence might look like. And what are the norms and treaties and institutions that we want to enshrine before we get to that place? And what are the defense policy consequences of the fact that our adversaries might not make the same choices mm -hmm. we do. Caitlin, I want you to talk about your policy work <laughs> at NATO and about Ethiopia, please. Yes, of course, very happy to. Um, so I was previously at NATO in their political affairs and security policy division, um, focusing a lot on uh, the liaison work that the NATO did with particular emphasis on the European Union and the United mm -hmm. Nations. Um, and that was really good grounding experience for coming to the Institute because, like Corey was saying, we deal with the policy challenges that are facing our organizations that have been founded, you know, in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And how do we modernize? You know, what are these key questions we're shaping? And I feel quite fortunate to have landed here at the IISS. Um, because we, we produce the, the knowledge and the data and the analysis that helps provide um, a sounding board for the policy decisions that organizations such as NATO or the UN, who I used to work with, mm -hmm. um, rely on to make the policies to take us forward. And you've both led transatlantic so trajectories in terms of your careers before um, arriving at the Institute. What are the benefits of studying international relations from these international perspectives? I started my work as a NATO expert. That mm -hmm. was the area of my uh, PhD research, mm -hmm. and it was the 
the subject matter of my first several jobs. Mm -hmm. So I was the NATO desk officer in mm -hmm. the joint staff in the strategy and policy division there. Um, and it was where I started. So it's the anchor mm -hmm. for me, both intellectually and emotionally, yes. as I think about my own work. Mm -hmm. And I had the great good fortune to start working it in a policy job um, in the summer of 1990. Mm -hmm. So just as fissures mm -hmm. were starting in the Cold time. War edifice, yeah. and just as we were having to start to imagine new futures, mm -hmm. um, and so it's still the set of questions mm -hmm. that I always return back to as I think about new questions. Yep. Uh, but Caitlin, a generation yeah. younger than me, may <laughs> have a different perspective on this. Yeah, well, no, I think it's, you know, different generations, but still the rich experience of um, studying abroad. So I was really fortunate, and I ended up doing my master's um, in three countries, actually. So I studied one year in Germany um, and a semester in Ethiopia, mm -hmm. and then I finished up my master's in Austria, in Vienna. And I think that it's exactly what, um, you know, when you're studying international relations and you're engaging in these issues, to be in the places or to have that international perspective um, is critical. It gives you a fingerprint for a culture. Mm -hmm. um, I notice that I think differently about my own culture. Yeah. Because yes. I look at it through... At, Emily Dickinson has a wonderful... Um, phrase of looking at truth aslant hmm. and I think about that a lot when I think about international relations if you learn to speak another language you get a sense for what what reality looks like to mm -hmm. them the way that their personal experience or their mm -hmm. cultural experience shapes how they conceptualize yes. that experience mm -hmm. and I think if you never get outside your own culture either by study or by life choices mm -hmm. or by language that you never look aslant at your own culture? Yeah. No, I'm, so I'm British-Australian and went through the French primary school system. Mm. So I feel, <laughs> I feel like English at home and Australian here. Yeah. Um, and don't really fit in in France. So I don't know exactly what you mean on a sort of more personal level. Related to this, as foreigners in London, um, has anything particularly sort of stood out in your experiences here, such as the impacts of Brexit, um, or having distance from Washington, or the recent controversy with the nerve agent attack on those cripples? Well, if I can jump in there, um, maybe it's not necessarily international relations mm -hmm. relevant, but their signage is amazing. Mind the gaps, please. Yeah. You know, they, they really take good care of you in yeah. terms of telling you to mind the gap and the signage yeah. of left or right. Um, okay, but you know what I notice? The British use way too many words for everything. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, all of their signs are, um, please don't yes. lock bikes to this, otherwise, right? Yeah. It's like, no bikes. <laughs> I think it's called politeness, where our, our primitive lands of north of the new world, we, we don't have such manners. Um, but signage being one, I, I also have to say, I moved to London in September 2015 mm -hmm. and the London that I moved to and the UK that I moved to is very different mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. the London Britain that I live in now yeah. um, and I'm living in the UK as an Italian citizen. You're an Italian citizen? Mm -hmm. My dad's Italian. How did I not know this? I, well <laughs> it's very convenient when you want to do world yeah. global travel um, 
but I'm living here as an Italian citizen. And this adds another question of identity mm. and what Brexit means. Um, and it's interesting being placed at the Institute because we study at it, it at a very policy perspective. Mm. What does this mean for European security and defense? Um, but then I also hold it quite personally. Mm. You know, this is, this was, a, you know, this is, um, it's something that makes you... Yeah, it affects you both personally mm-hmm. and professionally because it's so much of the of the content that we engage with um, here now. But I'd say, yeah, signage and Brexit. <laughs> uh, so your point about feeling Australian when you're in Britain mm-hmm. and British when you're in Australia really resonates with me because I feel like such a caricature of an American in Britain. Yeah. I feel like Annie Oakley. <laughs> <laughs> as people think Americans mm-hmm. are, right? All of the ridiculous stereotypes about my country, I'm, I'm living, right? Like, I, I'm out loud confirming everybody's caricature mm-hmm. of Americans here in Britain. As you see in my office, which is painted <laughs> yeah. the and blue of a California sky Aww. and has a banner of... A 1919 war bonds poster of Lady Liberty on the telephone raising money because that's me doing my job. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd also be interested to hear about your experiences um, as women in the international relations and security studies fields um, and what role gender has played, if any, um, in your career choices and opportunities. So I had an unusual experience. Mm. I have had unusual professional experiences in lots of ways. The first of which is I am almost entirely the product of female teachers. Mm. And for most women in the defense field, that's not true. I was a student of Condi Rice's at Stanford Mm -hmm. and a student of Catherine Kelleher's at the University of Maryland. Mm. Um, And so... It felt perfectly normal to me to be a woman interested in the nuts and bolts and Mm. the defense budget and war strategy because all of the people I wanted to grow up and be Mm. uh, looked like me, dressed like me, had bad hair problems (laughs) like me. That's not too bad. (laughs) Thank you. The second thing that was unusual about my experience was I went to work in the joint staff, so mm-hmm. the American, the Pentagon's military staff. Mm-hmm. As my first job, I was still ABD, I wasn't, mm-hmm. even, wasn't even out of graduate school. Yeah. And I think it is true that I was the only civilian in a staff of 1,500 people, and I also think it's true I was the only woman in a staff wow. of 1,500 people. Um, and yet, uh, it was was and is such a meritocracy mm. that people didn't care that I didn't look like them, mm. that, I be, that I had a different set of problems than them. They cared that I was good at my job. Yep. And so a lot, uh, it was so emboldening because compared to my experience in academia, mm. where I actually felt gender was a lot more determinative mm. um, and um, that people's expectations of my opportunities mm. were much more limited in an academic environment mm. than they were when I went to work in the joint staff. 
That's interesting. And I went intending to stay for a year, mm -hmm. and I stayed for five. Mm -hmm. And so my formative professional mm -hmm. experiences were in a place where I was the only woman, and nobody cared. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, moreover, they were, um, I think my experience, again, this was the early 1990s, I think my experience when I had problems in the workplace of people um, treating me in ways I was not comfortable with. Mm -hmm. I had the unusual experience in that my entire chain of leadership mm -hmm. insisted that I be treated like a professional in my mm -hmm. workspace and help me understand mm -hmm. how to act in ways that demanded that of the people around mm -hmm. me. And, and so in all three of those ways, mm -hmm having female teachers who helped me shape my professional comportment, working in a place that was a meritocracy early mm -hmm. in my a professional experience, and also in a place where my leadership took quite seriously mm -hmm. the expectation that I should feel welcome and fostered in my workplace, and it was their job to help me solve any problems associated with that. Mm -hmm. I think in all three of those ways, my experience was unusual and extraordinarily fostering and beneficial yeah. and so very strongly shaped my sense of myself. Mm -hmm. And I have to say I really echo Corey on all of those fronts, um, particularly in having the modeling, yeah. you know, how you act, engage in various environments because things are going to get thrown at you throughout the day mm. um, and you can find yourself in situations where you're unsure and I think that in those situations you tend to rely on what feels comfortable and oftentimes these are societal norms mm. that have just been taught to you subconsciously yeah. um, and trying to unlearn those can be a bit of a trick yeah. and this is something I'm still working on. It's a nice point Kayla. Thank you. I've never, you know, I, it's something that I haven't yet mastered um, but something I think the first step, it's like AA meetings, my first step is awareness. Yeah. <laughs> but then, it's also true. Mm. Yeah. Being aware of sometimes you say things or do things that you're not you don't mm -hmm. intend to do or sends a signal that you don't intend to send, but you do that um, yep. and trying to unlearn it. One other, just other point to add to that is how important it is to have good friends around you, mm -hmm. a good network of, you know, I've got a fabulous group of girlfriends who I go on holidays with, or I grab drinks with, and just being able to share your stories and experiences and bounce ideas off and not feel isolated in your experience mm -hmm. point. is really, really important. And I think one of the best ways to improve women's representation in this field and just in terms of the workforce and society and politics in general um, is to engage young women. And for me, this happened through podcasts. Um, to get to IR. Um, so, for example, hearing your voice and Rosa Brooks' voice every week um, or meeting people such as you at networking events rather than I've been to events before where it's just been sort of white middle-aged men um whereas you'd be much more approachable um and i think as a medium podcasts allow interviewers and interviewees to have in-depth discussions and they also allow listeners to feel part of the conversation i love that program. Um, same <laughs> same um and i think that inclusion is really important it gives a sort of a sense of free thinking and muddling through difficult questions and personally i think it's really exciting to listen in on experts going through these processes. Um, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts about podcasting or experiences with them. 
so um, among the reasons I am so devoted to our little Deep State Radio mm-hmm. podcast is that David Rothfuss, mm-hmm. who runs it, was the first male colleague mm-hmm. of mine who refused to participate in things that were solely male. Mm-hmm. And he has modeled inclusive behavior yeah. for all the time I've known him. He recruited female writers to the masthead mm-hmm. at foreign policy when he mm-hmm. was there. He's, uh, he's an ardent advocate of inclusion and diversity. Mm-hmm in ways that I hope I meet his standard mm. on. Um, podcast, I think you're right. One of the things I love about what David does with Deep State Radio is that we don't generally know what the subject is mm. before we start. So so it's like a good dinner party. Yeah. Right? Like you're, people don't prepare talking points. We're not mm. crisp and organized and we're kind of, huh, well, here's what I think about yeah. that. And I think that, too, Mm. fosters people's intellectual engagement Mm -hmm. on them because we're not talking heads, giving Mm. our prepared positions. We're thinking our way through a problem together. And we're also, as you know, Verity, since bless your heart, (laughs) is that we disagree with enormous Mm. respect Mm -hmm. for each other's views. And I think that, too feels a lot more like a family having a conversation mm-hmm. than it does some of the sharper-edged uh, political commentary that yep. goes on. Uh, so I not only um, do the Deep State Radio podcast twice a week, I'm a huge fan of podcasts. Mm-hmm. I love the bombshell podcast yep. at War on the Rocks. I love Adnan Duncan and, uh, and the Angry Staff Officers War Stories podcast. Mm-hmm. I love the short stories podcast. Like it for me, it's an easy way to get out of the mm. confines of my work and hear what other people think. Mm. So I listen to a broader range um, than even than I read yep. my work. Yep. And what it does is it gives me the opportunity to think about things in new ways. Mm-hmm which I personally really value. And it's a short cast way to learn a ton. Yeah. yeah. Which I love. <laughs> like in the War Stories podcast, they will take a really deep dive into uh, subjects that I would never have mm. thought to. And they're so engaging to listen to that it's easy to take on board something that I wouldn't read an article on. My um, friends often make fun of me for listening to more podcasts than music. Um, and also because all of my I facts, all of my facts start with, I was listening to a podcast and... <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it actually, I so at least true. personally find, mm. you know, in 45 minutes I could read mm. a detailed mm. article about submarine warfare and the Battle of Jutland, but I wouldn't. Yeah. Whereas I'll listen to it on the War Stories podcast. um, And so it's a much more accessible Mm. medium, I find. But what about you, Caitlin? Absolutely. I I love the fact that you go back to your favorite podcast every week. And it's Mm. the same people. It's a continuing conversation. It's a continuing conversation. You're part of this story and you feel engaged and you know that voice. 
And there's so much about oral story that I think that is just ingrained in us as human beings. These are how tra- our traditions have been passed on. It's a nice point. Um, I love coming back to c- coming back to these stories um, and touching on a range of topics that I normally wouldn't engage with. Um, listening to the New Yorker podcast mm-hmm. or the Daily, um, or listening to Jeff Goldberg interview some you know person who I wouldn't even have read an article from before on the Atlantic interview and or deep state radio of course yeah um it is it's a way of engaging um with people who we normally don't see and I think in a world where we can very much get into our own little bubbles mm-hmm. um and it becomes an echo chamber this is more important than ever yeah. so this is one way I'm a firm believer that social media or that you know new technologies mm-hmm. are actually breaking us out of mm-hmm. um shells. Mm-hmm. I think it's also um I particularly like when you feel part of the conversation and the fact that high-level experts are going through the same sort of ums and ahs as I feel that I do in my <laughs> yeah. tutorials. So my favourite part, the, uh, the nerds who listen yeah. to Deep State Radio, is they keep me honest mm. to a greater degree than anybody else does. Mm. If I have the year wrong mm-hmm. of the 1903, Four or five Venezuelan debt crisis. I will get <laughs> deep state nerds on Twitter disappointed in me for fudging and slurring my yeah. way through the difficult passages, mm-hmm. and I love that because yeah. it is a mm-hmm. it's a conversation yeah. with a group of people who actually really care about you being right, mm-hmm. and I love that. Mm-hmm. Um. And as the Beacon as a podcast is geared towards young people interested in IR, um, it would be really useful to hear any advice that you had for students thinking about pursuing it in further academic studies or as a future career. Oh, you have stumbled on <laughs> to a subject on which I, I love sermonising. Mm. Because um, in my heart, I am a school teacher, right? Mm-hmm. I am Winslow Homer's Prairie School teacher, yep. standing at a chalkboard, talking about geometry with <laughs> Um And I, there are a couple of things. Mm-hmm. First, uh, the advice I would give my 22-year-old self mm-hmm. is that um, to remember when things feel hard or you feel like you're not making any progress mm-hmm. and that what you look like to yourself is very often not what you look like to the rest of the mm-hmm. world. So there is no substitute for working hard yeah. and mastering mm-hmm. a subject. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it feels like drudgery. So just to take my personal mm-hmm. example, before I went to Stanford, yeah. I was making $5 an hour as an accountant in an art gallery. Mm-hmm. And four years later, with a degree from Stanford, I was making $5 an hour reading books as Condi Rice's research assistant. Mm-hmm. What my life looked like to me yeah. was a downward trajectory of mm-hmm. possibility. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's crazy talk, yeah. <laughs> right? But my 22-year-old self really thought I was going no place mm-hmm. in the world. So my first and most important message is... Uh, work hard to excel at what you're interested in because mm-hmm. you will always find a way to make a living at it. Yeah. It might not be the way you think. It mm-hmm. might not, right? Like fate and fortune toy with us all the time. Mm-hmm. But, but um, make yourself the master of something you're interested in 
because then you will always be interested in the work you do and most of us spend the majority of our time doing work Mm -hmm. Um, the second thing I wish I could tell my 22 year old self Mm -hmm. is uh, that working hard at the drudgery creates enormous opportunities for the fun stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, when I was working in General Powell's joint staff I got to run the NATO command structure review in 1991 and two mm-hmm. because I was the only person who could use the secretary, not the secretary of defense. Mm-hmm. I mean, the answer the telephone yeah. secretary's computer graphics package to draw him a map of the entire structure. Mm-hmm. They, what I notice as the boss of people mm-hmm. is that I will take the trade-off of less talent and better mm-hmm. attitude mm-hmm. every day of the week mm-hmm. um, because it, very often people's specific talents aren't what's needed. Yep. It's somebody who can find a way to do something useful, to think about a problem mm-hmm. in a new way, to open up different opportunities. So if you have to make the trade-off between industriousness or brilliance, mm. choose industriousness. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess the third piece of advice I wish I could give my 22-year-old self is that um, uh, in international relations, a lot of times we focus really more and more narrowly mm-hmm. in order to be able to do something original. And at the start of your career, that's a really good choice. Mm -hmm. Um, Generalists at 22 aren't that useful Mm -hmm. because you don't have enough experience that I'm going to care what you think about grand strategy. Mm -hmm. But at 22, if you are the expert on NATO defense spending tables, Mm and how to talk about who's above 2% and why and who's below 2% and why, that's really of interest to me as a Mm -hmm. boss. And I am going to give you opportunities for growth and expansion. But if you try and start as a generalist, Mm -hmm. you're actually likely to get a lot less traction. Mm -hmm. And so much of the commentary about academics um, in policy is uh, all they care about is such a narrow slice of you know <laughs> what did uh, what did Tory what did supporters of the British Crown living in the state of South Carolina who were twenty three years old in the year seventeen seventy five right that's a caricature yeah. that academics are so narrow mm-hmm. they have nothing to contribute I think that's a mistake mm-hmm. no that's interesting I, I think start by being the world's living expert on what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And that will earn you the opportunities for expansion of your portfolio over time. And if you try and start as a generalist, Mm. you're actually not going to be enough value added Mm. with no experience in the field to a 40-year-old who's done three different policy jobs um, and done a postdoc where they wrote a Delphi paper for the IISS on what they actually know. Mm. So start narrow, and Mm. that's the way to build large but yeah. Caitlin, you're closer to this problem than I am. <laughs> well, I, I just to, to, to tag on to that, um, you know, go narrow and also get dirty. Get your hands on. When I um, went to Ethiopia, yeah. this was not something my parents were hugely supportive of. <laughs> they wanted me to study business in Toronto 
and you know um, they called going to Europe going la la <laughs> which is my Italian's dad's way of saying just going you know for vacation yeah. um, and so on that note although they're incredibly supportive I must say um, but I said but there was a, a moment where you realize if I want to be an expert on the Horn of Africa and I want to really know this region well I need to go there. Yeah. And I didn't know what would come of it. And yes, it got a little bit messy, but did I learn immensely? Absolutely. Mm. So if the opportunity arises... Um, no, no, no. Not if the opportunity arises. As you did, make the opportunity for mm. yourself. If, when, the, uh, when you make the opportunity happen, yeah. <laughs> you grab it. Yeah. You grab it. Um, absolutely. So that's, I think, the three points I entirely, uh, wholeheartedly agree with, and I would just add the experience there mm. as well. And you both started off your sort of university um, experiences in interested in IR. Where do you think that interest originally came from? And sort of at what age? How? Was there a defining moment? Uh, so I was a dreamy, impractical kid. <laughs> uh, and... I had designed my own major at Stanford, mm. uh, and looking back, it always makes me laugh when people trace the path of my career and they think I made shrewd, ruthless <laughs> choices, because yeah. that is so not what mm. it looked like uh, when I was making my choices. Yeah. But the question I think has always animated my interest mm. is that our questions around political culture. Mm-hmm. Why are some societies able to solve their problems and others mm-hmm. aren't? Mm-hmm. Um, how much does history weigh in mm-hmm. different societies' versions of themselves? Yeah. How much do institutions attenuate or aggravate mm-hmm. different cultural pro- proclivities? Um, and I actually wanted to write my PhD dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> and I still want to write this book. Mm. I may still write this book <laughs> on the renaissance of the Latin American novel in the 1970s mm. and what it tells us about the role of culture yeah. in politically repressive societies. Mm. Um, because, because I was doing a lot of work on Latin America at the time yeah. and reading a lot of novels by Irish writers of the period and they spoke so profoundly mm. about the cultural experience of a society riven by violence. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I watched the beautiful flowering of novels in Latin America mm. at a time before Latin American governments were as representative as they mm. are now, I, I thought I saw a pattern and a richness and a way to think about how culture informs international relations. Mm. Yeah. As a history um, and politics student, it's that sort of intersection yes, that made me absolutely. decide to study both. Oh, yay! Yeah. Wonderful! Uh, no, I love that sort of social history insight into the sort of the big picture politics. I think that's where it gets really interesting. So my favourite part of doing the mm. research for my book, Safe Passage, that yeah. came out about four months ago was reading British travel writers of the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, because what I was trying to understand was 
when does the penny drop yeah. and America start to feel culturally similar to Britain? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out mm-hmm. in the diplomatic history. Yeah. I couldn't figure it out in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And travel writers yeah. were how I figured it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see the beginnings as... You know, in the aftermath of the Civil War, when mm-hmm. slavery is no longer such a major focus of how Americans look profoundly hypocritical to the British, but but it's more sort of travel writers looking with marvel mm-hmm. at westward expansion mm-hmm. and and thinking about the way that religious revivalism in America. Mm-hmm makes religion entrepreneurial in America yeah. and the way it's not in other places. And they start to leave off with some of the condescension mm. and and engage in cultural comparison on mm. a level playing field. Mm. And and for me that's the moment yeah. at which the understanding crystallized for mm. me. Um, but but Caitlin maybe your experience is different. Yeah, no, I um that's a very good question. I'm trying to think about it. I think, ultimately, I'm fascinated by people mm-hmm. and the way we interact with each mm-hmm. other. And politics is an expan- is just an expansion mm-hmm. of that. You know, as far as I see, how do you know people who run states, who run governments, who run multinational organizations, um, how, do we, how do we interact and engage with each other um, on the world stage? And... Complemented with that is a sense of curiosity. And when I was 16, um, I did an international Rotary Youth Exchange. Yay! I love Rotary Fellowships! Yeah. Your dad's Rotarian, right? My dad is a very proud Rotarian. So he, Sonoma, California. There you go. And Rotarians, another great family, like podcast link mm-hmm. people, Rotarians as well. Um, these very, very kind people sent a 16 year old Caitlin to. Germany to live for a year mm-hmm. um, and I think this is where it really hit the ground for me yeah. I'm interested in people but God there's a whole world out there that I'm ready to explore and understand um, and that's that's what kicked it off and Corey was mentioning you know you're looking into various literature and how that morphed into a, the, the world of international relations so I wrote my finest final thesis um, for my BA I should say on the uncanny and fantastical in German literature and how this developed in the 1930s under, you know, as Nazi Germany was coming to power and how this was represented in German literature and very much the same thing. You're not looking directly at something but just off to the side and that tells you so much whether it's travel writers or whether it's um, Leo Pruitt's. Hmm, That's very interesting. Um, I was. And how about you, Verdi? How did it so come to you for I was you? about to say I was English and history were always my two sort of favourite subjects, mm-hmm. um, and I was originally considering to apply for history and English, and then I realised halfway through my final year of school that I was reading the news as if listening to podcasts more than I was reading novels. Uh-huh. Um, but my sort of end of school essay, um, I looked at the different World War Two food policies of Britain and Germany. Um, Interesting. So, yeah. Having grown up with my grandparents' stories of rationing and their, their yes, sort of, of food habits now, like you must always finish what's on your plate. Shadows, right. They really yeah. do. So I was really interested um, 
by comparing the two and I use sort of the concept of um, the social contract between the state and people and how it differed um, mm. between mm. the two countries. And um, I was also studying the Arab-Israeli crisis at the time in my history lessons um, and seeing it sort of on the news um, with sort of the military incursion to Gaza at the time. So I was like, wow, this is, like, history is still living. Um, and mm. yeah, I've sort of applied to history and politics um, studying it now at Oxford. That's a wonderful um, path. I'm yeah, loving it. That's so, so interesting. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think the um, I'm studying Russian politics next term. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> good call. Yeah, <laughs> quite topical. Um, yeah. But one of the reasons that I chose to do that as my regional study um, is because my parents lived in Kiev um, in the early 1990s. Oh, and wow. And again, their stories and their experiences, little things like carrying back a bag of frozen potatoes mm. or like, experiences about how um, Russians and Ukrainians and Americans and British expats all interact with each other um, it really got me interested. Mm. So but Sometimes in these stories, the little human things that give exactly. it that texture that make it real, yep. like the story of the potatoes, because you can relate, you know, there's, yeah. there's a... Yeah. I have a friend who was uh, in the then Soviet mm. Union mm. Um, and took a guy, she was pregnant, mm. and her doctor had her take a Geiger counter to the supermarket. Really? Because. What is that? I'm sorry. Uh, that it measures radiation? radiation. Yeah. I mean, imagine wow. that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 oh my God, what did I do in my life that I'm now carrying a my, um My parents had this one story that um, they were going to the opera one night and they were picked up in US Army truck, uh, Army tank, sorry, um, to be taken to the opera. So my wow. mom was in a ball gown <gasps> and it was sort of like carried along. Wow. Yeah, so it's those sort of things which um, I think got me interested. In terms of the final question, um, what are three books that have influenced you but are not necessarily favourites and that you would recommend to listeners, please? Would you like to go first? Or would you uh, yeah, well, I've, I, I, I love this question so much. Um, and the first book I'm going to say is one that is not related to international relations mm. at all, but just because I love it. Yeah. Um, when I was young, I think I read this book with my mom called Dear Mr. Henshaw. Have you ever heard of it? Nope. So this, it's essentially um, a boy who's in grade six, and he's writing letters to his favorite author. And his author, his favorite author, God bless him, keeps writing back. Mm. And you can read the story on two different levels. And I was too young to read the nuance, mm. the, you know, sort of the in-between, the nuances. Yeah. But my mom, I just saw tears coming down her eyes when she was reading mm -hmm. it, and she would explain it to me. And essentially, you know, the crux of the story is this boy's in grade six, he's incredibly lonely, his parents are mm -hmm. going through a painful divorce, um, which he doesn't quite understand or doesn't have the emotional tools to deal with um, and is feeling isolated and has a difficult relationship with his father. Mm -hmm. um, but that book just really stands out because sometimes, you know, what's on the surface of things isn't actually real. Like, if you look mm -hmm. at these letters at one, one stage, it's just, you know, an author humoring his, one of his youngest fans. Um, but another level, the little boy is telling some deep stuff, mm. and the author's trying to mm. trying to coach him in a way. So I lo I just love that mm. story and the um, never take something it necessarily always at face value. Um, this is not a book, but an, I love Bill Bryson. 
the yeah. travel writer, just good when you're going on vacation. Yeah. Read and also telling the world like your travel writers who are God notes from a sunburned country. Oh, with the his obsession with how dangerous Australia is, <laughs> and Australians don't appear to notice this. Exactly, it's so funny. Yeah. and he's unabashedly just. I don't understand this country. Or when he goes to you know through the Beltway of America, or you know, or he moves to Great Britain for yeah. the first time, and it's it just sort of these questions, these silly questions that pop into your head, which I often have, you know, often living as a foreigner. Um, and the book that I'm reading now, which I'm really enjoying, is called *The Future Is History* by Masha Gessen, um, a New Yorker mm-hmm. author, and she's someone who I always turn to when there are any questions of Russia um, to deal with modern-day Russia, and mm-hmm. I just love the way she is looking at what's happening now in Russia under Putin and tracing that back to the early 1980s mm-hmm. and how the totalitarian state that was there now, how it traces mm-hmm. through. And if I can, just one thing that stands out from that um, is how important the social sciences are because mm-hmm. these are the studies that threaten authoritarian states and how the Soviet Union slowly eroded, you know, Mm -hmm. psychology and even economic, you know, this is, your physicists aren't necessarily going to challenge you, but it's your social sciences. So guys, if you're, if you're in this, (laughs) you're in our fields. Yes. So those would be the three. Okay. Uh, So let's see, my three, Uh, the first one is Will Durant's Caesar and Christ. Okay. Uh, because when I was in fifth grade mm-hmm. and a discipline problem class uh, <laughs> all the time, and my mother was uh, not only the superintendent of the school board, but also volunteered in the library at my elementary school, mm-hmm. and saw me thrown out of class time and time and time again, uh, she didn't uh, tell me she was ashamed of me. Mm-hmm. She instead walked by gave me the look she reserved for when her children had persuaded her she had wasted her life and said, oh, for Christ's sake, Corey, if you are not going to let anyone else teach you, your education is your own responsibility. And she handed me Will Durant's Caesar and Christ, Mm -hmm. and we spent the next two months reading it together after school. And so much of what I love about being a historian mm. comes from all these happy memories yeah. of a mother who uh, understood her child was mm. a problem and gave that child a constructive outlet for mm-hmm. it and made it fun all mm. along the way. So, so I have a huge soft spot for Will Durant's cycle because um, I read them with my mom. The second book... Uh, I love is a novel written a few years ago. I can't remember the author's name. It's called Snowdrops. And it has the best opening line of any book I have read in recent years. And that opening line is, there are no love stories in modern Russia. There are only crime stories. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the novel proceeds to prove that opening line true. (laughs) and it's a really sad reflection the author was a economist stringer Mm. in russia and and it's a novel that tells a story about a young british lawyer working in contemporary moscow uh and and 
his crime story. Mm-hmm. And the third book I love so much um, is In the Rose Garden of the Martyrs, also written by an economist stringer, but this one mm-hmm. in Tehran. Mm-hmm. And again, it has a magnificent opening, which is Iraqis uh, in the holy city of Najaf. Mm-hmm complaining about Iranian pilgrims. And then it goes on to talk about the way that Iran, uh, contemporary Iran is, uh, is wrestling with the legacy of the Iran-Iraq war, mm-hmm. wrestling with a series of economic, political choices about rewarding uh, the, the Iranians who fought in that war and how the friction and contrast with broader Iranian society and its desire for greater normality. Uh, I found it a really touching book mm-hmm. about, about everyday experience in a culture I know very little about. Mm-hmm. So this would be my three. Hmm. Yeah, both, thank you very much. Being I want to know your three books. Oh. I've never had the question turned on me. Um, okay, first one would have to be Philip Holman's His Dark Materials. Um, I read those when I was um, maybe 10 years old for the first time and I've read them, the trilogy several times since and um, every time sort of learned, mm. so, um, seen new, had new insights into it. So I actually um, love reading my favourite books every mm. five or ten years. Yeah. Because they are, I read them as different books at different stages mm. in my life. So I think that's yeah, really interesting when you think, go back and reread them. Um, as you were saying, Caitlin, at 10 years old, I was sort of understanding the surface level mm-hmm. plot line. Um, but going back to it, um, particularly because part of his art materials is set in Oxford and it's based on real places. Um, yes. So I can actually sort of like walk yes. past places yeah. where things happen. It's like, oh, that's great. Um, like a lot of layers and it's sort of and considering you've been into woven. And now <laughs> you're part of that expert. It's wonderful. Um, so in that way, it's become a part of yeah, interwoven is my real life. Um, second book would be Avi Schleim's Israel and Palestine. Mm. I think that was the book that made me realise history and politics was what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, Abby Schleim writes so beautifully about yeah, such a controversial um, topic. Um, and I think I really admire the way that, um, as a new new historian, he aims for a balanced approach. Um, and having the opportunity to interview him a few months ago was amazing. Oh, cool. Okay, I'm just laughing. I I never realised the gender of that particular yes, author. Yes, yes. And, in fact, I realised what a sexist I am <laughs> because I had always assumed that it was such a nuanced, calibrated oh. book. I assumed the author was female. <laughs> yeah, no, Abby, Abby is, um, is a man. Um, he's lovely. <laughs> um, and yeah, his his room at um St Anthony's, um, it's very much how you imagine a, an Oxford Don's room to be, um, and then third book, um, I really like Mag- Malcolm Gladwell's writing, um, I think yes. I really like 
Do you way. listen to his podcast? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> of course um, you, you know, do. Revisionist of course history. you do. Um, and as you're saying, like, how social science is sort of a challenge authoritarian mm-hmm. regimes, um, the way he'll start off with a little anecdote, um, like eating peanut butter or like chips from McDonald's, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and then draw out the this fact of lesson. the McDonald's exactly. chips and how that was the yeah. crux of, yeah. oh, he, he's, The way he uses his voice and um, his language. So I think those would be my three. Fantastic. Cool. Very cool. Thank yeah. you for this conversation. No, it's been it was an absolute pleasure. Yeah. I appreciate you giving us the opportunity. Thank you both so much. Um, and to listeners of The Beacon, I hope you've enjoyed our conversation today um, and keep tuning in for more interviews in the future.